Father God, thank you for your people, for their servants' hearts and their, the way that they prepare so diligently to be faithful to you in both the content as well as the competence with which they do things for your glory. Thank you for encouraging and, and already fueling our hearts to worship you and to hear your word and to meditate upon it and reflect upon it and apply it and respond in, in adoration and praise to you because you are a great God. You're gracious to us slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. You are faithful to us even when we are faithless. You remain faithful for you cannot deny yourself. Thank you for that, Lord. We've already seen that this week in our experiences, that when we, when we display weakness, you are strong. When we falter and we are, have our propensity and our unredeemed humanness that remains to choose sin or sinful thoughts or struggle with things. Lord, you continue to relentlessly love us and call us back to yourself by your grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your sanctifying work in our lives by your spirit and your word. Father, we pray for this morning that you would teach us through your word. We tread on holy ground this morning, Lord, in the Garden of Gethsemane. We reflect and remember and ponder what our, G- our Lord Jesus underwent as the perfect God-man in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, move in us a desire all the more to worship you and adore you in the light of what we will learn from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42 is our text for this morning. Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. And if you're able to stand with me in honor of God's word, please do so at this time. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. This is God's holy, inspired, and errant word. Mark 14, 32. They came to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Getting Gethsemane. Getting Gethsemane. The faithful British pastor and preacher of the 19th century, C.H. Spurgeon, wrote the following about Gethsemane. Quote, Our Lord Jesus, after having eaten the Passover and celebrated the supper with his disciples, went with them to the Mount of Olives and entered the Garden of Gethsemane. What induced him to select that place to be the scene of his terrible agony? 
Why there in preference to anywhere else would he be arrested by his enemies? May we not conceive that as in the Garden of of Eden, Adam's self-indulgence ruined us, so in the Garden of Gethsemane, the agonies of the second Adam, Jesus, should restore us. Gethsemane supplies the medicine for the ills which followed upon the forbidden fruit of Eden. No flowers which bloomed upon the banks of the fourfold river were ever so precious to our race as the bitter herbs which grew hard by the black and sullen stream in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have thus come to the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane. Let us now enter, but first let us put off our shoe from our foot, as Moses did when he also saw the bush which burned with fire and was not consumed. Surely we may say with Jacob, how dreadful is this place. I tremble at the task which lies before me, for how shall my feeble speech describe those agonies for which strong crying and tears were scarcely an adequate expression in the Garden of Gethsemane? I desire with you to survey the sufferings of our Redeemer. But oh, may the Spirit of God prevent our mind from thinking aught amiss or our tongue from speaking even one word which would be derogatory to Him either in His immaculate manhood or His glorious Godhead. It is not easy when you are speaking of one who is both God and man to observe the exact line of correct speech. How easy it is to describe the divine side in such a manner as to trench upon the human or to depict the human at the cost of the divine. Make me not an offender for a word if I should err. A man had need himself to be inspired or to confine himself to the very words of inspiration fitly to speak at all times upon the great mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh and especially when he has to dwell upon God so manifest in suffering flesh. O Lord, Open thou my lips, that my tongue may utter right words. I concur. I concur fully as I have studied the Garden of Gethsemane, beloved, and Jesus there. Aren't those fitting words and, and sentiments for us to hear and reflect upon as we now tread upon the holy ground of Gethsemane? They are indeed. It's this mind boggling passage that we have an opportunity to ponder. This morning, the agony that our Savior underwent in this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. How important is this scene of Gethsemane in the life of our Lord Jesus? All three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the synoptic Gospels, record the agony of Gethsemane. And John chapter 18, verse 1, only mentions Jesus' withdrawal to this location, but you can make the argument that all that follows in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 18, builds on what happens here in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this scene of Gethsemane is crucial. It's crucial in, in catapulting our Savior to the cross of Calvary. It's crucial that you and I understand the importance of Gethsemane, that we would understand it and and appreciate what takes place here. For this reason, the title of our message today is Getting Gethsemane, and it's intentionally worded that way. Because I think there are certain things that we need to get from what happens here in Gethsemane. And mark it. Whatever there is to say, And whatever there is to learn and glean from as far as lessons for our personal lives, the central person in the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus Himself. No one else. 
all of the truths that we're going to look at here center on the wonderful, magnificent, majestic person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the main point of the passage. He is Christ. And very soon, Him crucified. And so what are we to get about Jesus from this amazing account in the Garden of Gethsemane? Here are four glorious portraits of Christ. Four glorious portraits of Christ as we reflect on Gethsemane. Ready? Here we go. The first portrait for us to ponder and appreciate is Christ's unique passion. Christ's unique passion. That's primarily in verses 32 through 34. Christ's unique passion. You know, many of us have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. I don't know what you felt about the movie or what your opinions were about the movie and all of that. Some of you are really good at critiquing those kinds of things. I'm not, okay? I didn't agree with many aspects of the movie. Some things I really appreciated. But we understand, excuse me, we understand that by the title, The Passion of the Christ, what was meant was the suffering and the death of Jesus. The suffering and the death of Jesus. The fact that Jesus suffered and suffered greatly at the hands of men, even as we see portrayed in that movie, that at the hands of godless men, Jesus was shamed and spit upon and mocked and slapped at and beaten and flogged and an array of other things, ridiculed greatly. And ultimately, of course, he suffered greatly when he was crucified, when he was put on the cross of Calvary, a symbol of suffering and shame, as the song says. And so when we think of Jesus' suffering or, or passion, we think about all of those aspects of Jesus' suffering, and we're right in doing so. But have you ever considered, brothers and sisters, that Jesus' suffering, that His passion, began before His actual arrest here in the Garden of Gethsemane? It says in verse 32 that they came to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is derived from the Hebrew meaning olive press. Olive press. It's called that because it lies east of the Kidron Brook at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And somewhere in there was an olive press enclosed or surrounded by a a stone wall. It's possible that it was a private property. Maybe it was owned by by someone we cannot confirm. Maybe someone who knew Jesus and his disciples. Maybe someone who was a follower of Jesus owned this particular private piece of land. And you say, well, why do you say that? Because it's evident that it was a place familiar to Jesus. It seems that it was a place that Jesus would often visit along with his disciples and spend prolonged time at this sort of mini retreat location called the Garden of Gethsemane. The parallel account of this passage of Luke chapter 22 and verse 39 says about Jesus that he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. That's speaking of this particular instance here. And then complementing that passage, John 18 and verse 2 says this, Now Judas also, who was betraying Jesus, knew the place. He knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. That's speaking of Gethsemane, that Judas Iscariot was such a familiar place that he knew the place well. Why? Because they would spend regular time there, Jesus and his 12 disciples. 
And part of the point that the gospel writers are making is that no longer is Jesus now progressing toward the cross by stealth. Remember the upper room where Jesus is in, in hidden form, concealing this from Judas Iscariot? He didn't want Judas to know the location in Jerusalem of the upper room because he needed to have that Passover meal with his disciples. So everything was done secretly. Jesus was totally in control of everything, but it was done by stealth. Well, now Jesus is openly moving along because it's time for his suffering. It's time for his passion. And so it's here in Gethsemane that Jesus will begin to suffer. He will begin to suffer here. Now look at verse 32. Having arrived to Gethsemane, Jesus says to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. We're going to look at that. Jesus' prayer life throughout this particular passage. But he leaves eight of the eleven in this first location within this enclosed area. And he says, sit here until I have prayed. And then in verse 33, he took with him Peter and James and John. That's his inner circle of disciples. Those who have been the recipients of, of privileged blessings and privileged opportunities from Jesus, like being up there on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. You remember it was only Peter and James and John that got an opportunity to be there. And also in, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus raises the, the little girl, a little girl from the dead, Jairus' daughter. And it was the Peter, James, and John who got an opportunity to see that happen. See Jesus raise this little girl. And so now, these three, this inner circle of three, are about to get the ultimate, ultimate exposure. They're going to be eyewitnesses, close eyewitnesses to everything that happens here in Gethsemane, while the other eight wait a little bit farther, farther beyond. Now notice verse 33. He took with him Peter and James and John. And listen to this. And he began to be very distressed and troubled. Very distressed and troubled. Interestingly, that word distressed is translated in Mark chapter 9, verse 15 as amazed. As amazed. There it's speaking of a time when the whole crowd saw Jesus. And it says in Mark 9, 15 that they were amazed when they saw Jesus. But here, that he was very distressed appears in its intensified form, and it means that Jesus was very alarmed. That it was almost like he was stunned. That he became very shocked. And coupled with this, look at verse 33. 33 it says that he was troubled. Very troubled. It means he was filled with extreme anxiety. That our Lord was under excruciating emotional stress and a high degree level of pressure that we will never experience as the Son of Man did. Now we should ask, were these emotions by Jesus that He was very distressed and troubled? Were these emotions evidences of of sin or, or some weakness in Jesus? And of course the answer is absolutely not. These are real emotions that you would expect of someone who is really human. Who is really human. We too would experience and feel something similar if we were anticipating such severe affliction, wouldn't we? We as well. 
But don't miss this. Here is the difference between us and Jesus. Jesus is absolutely perfect. Jesus is totally pure. Jesus is completely holy. He will be the spotless, blameless Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is perfect. And so His experience of these things were unique and unlike anything that we will ever know. Why? Because we are imperfect and we are flawed, right? The degree, the intensity with which Jesus would experience these things was much greater than anything that we can imagine because we are imperfect and flawed and broken people. Amazing. He is perfect, pure, and holy. And so the degree of anguish here is much, much greater. It's why he says in verse 34, look there, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus says, from within, from the very recesses of my being, I am deeply grieved. Perilupas. Deeply grieved. We get our word perimeter from this little preposition attached to the front of this word. Translated deeply grieved. Jesus is saying, I am I'm encircled by grief. I am surrounded by sorrow. I am engulfed in grief. I am engulfed in sadness. This is our Savior. This is our Lord Jesus. I was experiencing this. How severe is the extent and the intensity of His agony? He says, to the point of death. To the point of death. Ever been so sick that you feel like dying? (laughs) During COVID, there's been various people that have been very sick, including my dear wife. And I've heard it said, man, I felt so sick that I felt like dying. Just wanted the Lord to take me home. I was reading somebody's testimony this week about that. A pastor who got sick. You know, man, I feel like a, like a truck hit me. I feel like dying. Ever feel like that? You ever experience such pressure and stress that you just want to go home to be with the Lord? Think about that moment and realize this. Those moments of excruciating pain that you experience are nothing in comparison to what we're seeing here that happens to our Lord. Listen, He's not using here hyperbolic language, is He? Jesus is not being hyperbolic here. He's not saying these things for shock value. Jesus is under such emotional anguish and agony. He's under such a high level of turmoil and pressure that it's as if He could die physically speaking. And He's not just being hyperbolic here. It reminds me of the outcry from the heart of the psalmist. In Psalm 42 and verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? The psalmist says. I mean, the guy's even talking to himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Psalm 42, verse 6. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. He says, my soul is sunk down, engulfed. The sense is, I am in the pit of despair, says the psalmist. But back to our precious Lord, we should ask this. In the midst of all of this, we should ask why. And I asked myself this as I studied this passage. 
and his experience here and all of these amazing descriptions that I can't even begin to imagine as a fallen creature, as a broken man. I ask myself, why? Why is our precious Lord engulfed in anguish and of soul? Why is it that here we see in this portrait, in the passion of Christ, our hero, the champion of our faith, expressing such things and feeling this kind of anguish of of soul? Is it because of fear? Is he scared? Is it because he's, he's fearful of the beatings that people will give him very soon? Is he afraid of the Roman government, of the Roman soldiers? He was aware of the excruciating pain of people being crucified. Thousands were crucified at that time. Is he just afraid of that? Is it because he's dignified? You know, because he's dignified, he's not looking forward to the, to the shame and the embarrassment of the cross. Is that it? Is it because his disciples will forsake him? Because his disciples will abandon him? Is that it? He doesn't want to be lonely? He doesn't want to be alone. There's certainly an element of that, as we're going to see. But the answer is no to all of this. None of these reasons are the primary reasons that Jesus is feeling this way. Beloved, the primary reason Jesus is under such emotional distress is because He, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, is about to experience the stain of others' imperfection placed upon Himself. Our sins will be transferred to Jesus' account, will be reckoned to His account at the cross. The guilt of human sin, not His, but ours, of the whole world, will be placed upon Jesus. And Jesus is feeling this way because He's anticipating how at the cross of Calvary, our sins will be placed upon Him. And then the ultimate agony is this. Ready? Here's the ultimate agony. That God, His Father, with whom He has spent all eternity in perfect fellowship, in perfect communion, in perfect connection, in perfect relationship, as the first and second members of the Trinity, and with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, He's experiencing this because now His Father with whom he has had eternal fellowship, will pour out his just, righteous wrath upon his own son, not because of his sins, but because of our sins. Our sins will be placed upon Jesus. And at that moment, when our sin is placed upon Jesus, and God the Father is punishing his son, Jesus, for the first time ever, will experience a breach in the relationship between him and the Father. Because of our sin. Let that sink in. He will experience for the first time the taste of bitter abandonment from God the Father. Because of our sins placed upon Him. He will experience the the feeling of separation from His Father at the cross. When God is pouring out His wrath upon His own Son for our sins and for your sins. You know, I'm the father of five kids, five kids, and they weren't always older. They were little at one point, and there have been a couple of moments, and both of these have been my fault, by the way. There have been a couple of moments 
As I look back when my kids were little, where a couple of my kids ran off and got lost. One time at the beach and the other time I forget where I was at a park or something. And we couldn't find them. After a few minutes, we, we found them. And, and you should see the look on the face of those little ones. You've experienced maybe that as a parent where you've lost your child and finally you see them and they see you. What kind of look do they have? It's agonizing, isn't it? I mean, they feel like, why did you leave me? It's almost like it's your fault. It's your fault, kid, for running off by yourself, right? But it's anguish. It is agony. Why? Because they experience separation from their parents. Beloved, if that is difficult, imagine how infinitely greater this sense of separation and this breach of relationship Jesus, the Son of God, experienced from His own Father. This is why our precious Savior is so distressed, so troubled, so deeply grieved, even to the point of death. It's not just hyperbolic language to get our, us to be shocked at this for shock value. I mean, we can't even begin to identify with this unique passion. I got to tell you, I wrestle with this Lord. Wow, how in the world can I and our congregation, your sheep, your people, even begin to understand this unique suffering? We can't even begin to imagine the extreme agony that Christ experienced and that anticipation of his suffering. can't even begin to imagine that. And I think part of the reason, at least as, as I search my own heart, Part of the reason for this is because we don't understand Jesus' humanity as we should. That he was truly human. Always God. He added a human nature to his deity in his incarnation. He was the perfect God-man. He is the perfect God-man. But we don't understand his humanity as we should. You see, we look at his suffering and may be tempted to think, you know, his suffering was brutal, man. His suffering was brutal, but you know, it was bearable for him because after all, he's God. He could take it. It's like the older brother of a kid can take the punch, right? For his younger brother. He can take it. After all, Jesus is God. Of course he could do this. But we must be careful here. We must be careful here that we do not elevate Jesus' deity so as to diminish his humanity, right? And yes, it's also true the other way that we must be equally careful not to elevate his humanity so as to forget his deity that he's God. Both are certainly true. So we must be careful both ways. Jesus is both God and man, 100% God, 100% man. He is two natures in one person. Two natures in one person. This is what is known, by the way, as the, the hypostatic union of Christ. The doctrine of the hypostatic union seeks to explain biblically, theologically, as we look at the Word of God, the miraculous union and the bringing together of the two natures of Christ, His divine and human natures, into one person. How does that work? Because it's true. The Bible, God's Word, affirms that. That He is one person, the Son of God, who is both human and divine. Even as we speak, he is that. Hypostatic union. He is one person with two 
natures, without confusion or convolution of either nature. Jesus is that. The Bible affirms that. Jesus is forever the perfect God-man. That is so, so important, beloved, when we read passages like Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Go there with me. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Keep in mind, Jesus is truly God and truly human. And that's very important because of passages like these in our own Christian experience as we meditate and contemplate what the writer of Hebrews says here in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Notice, speaking of Jesus here, and specifically the experience of the Garden of Gethsemane of our Lord. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, In the days of His flesh, of Jesus' flesh, in other words, when He was incarnated on earth physically, in bodily form, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And then listen to this in verse 8. Although he was a son, he's the eternal son of God, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. What? I mean, we think about deficiency when we think about learning something. We think about even potentially somebody being naive and ignorant and that being a negative thing, not in the case of Jesus, God's eternal son. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered and having been made perfect, there's the confirmation that whatever this learning was while in his incarnation, he didn't sin, he was made perfect, then he became to all those in his perfection, to all those who obey him, the source of eternal life. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. What does that mean? I think it means this. Ready? That in some mysterious, inexplicable way that we, because of our imperfection, can never fully know, in some inexplicable, mysterious way, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, while on earth, went through a learning process. He went through a learning process through his very suffering as a human being. And the Garden of Gethsemane is part and parcel of that. But listen, through it all, he remained, Hebrews chapter 7 and, or 5 and verse 8, perfect. He never sinned. Otherwise, he cannot qualify to go to the cross as the perfect, blameless God-man, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. If he sinned, if he is imperfect in some capacity, if this learning meant that he was deficient in a sinful kind of a way, he remained the spotless Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so listen, theologically, this scene describing Jesus' extreme, excruciating suffering reveals the true humanity of Christ. It's evidence that He is also not only fully God in the Garden of Gethsemane, but also truly human. In other words, beloved, He's not just putting on a show here. He's really experiencing agony, even things that sinners like us will never know to this extent. Because he's perfect. But he's really suffering nevertheless. It's real. It's genuine. And that should comfort us. Because he's also our high priest who intercedes for our sins and understands our weaknesses. No one experienced the push of a sinful humanity more than the perfect holy one, the perfect righteous one, the perfect pure one. Isaiah 53 verse 3 foretold of this passion of the suffering servant. We've alluded to these verses many times. 
Isaiah 53, verse 3, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be one who would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, of pains, and acquainted with grief. And one, like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Beloved, this unique suffering began in Gethsemane. And I ask you right now, I ask you as we meditate and ponder this passage, who chooses this? Who chooses this kind of agony? And who does it? Who chooses this kind of thing for rebel sinners? Who does that? I mean, we choose to be kind and loving to people that, are, that we deem worthy of our love and worthy of our affection. That maybe they scratch our back, so we scratch their back, right? Why would somebody choose this, this kind of suffering, For rebel sinners. I'll tell you. Jesus, the eternal son of God, did it because of his great love for us. Right? John 3.16. You know the verse. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God loves sinners. Therefore, hear me very clearly. He crushed his own son on our behalf. God loves sinners so much and loved us that he crushed his own son on the cross. Ponder that for a minute. Relish in that. It should evoke worship and adoration. It should want to make us at the end of this worship service sing all the more louder. Right, brother? That God has loved us in Christ. That if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, His favor is upon you. God is for you. You are no longer under condemnation. 1 John 4, 9, By this the love of God was manifested, was shown to us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and may have it, what? Abundantly. Not that you might have a little bit of life. Not that you may have a little bit of quality of life. He says, I want you to, I want to lavish my blessings upon you so that you really live. Because now you have escaped By faith in me, the penalty of your sin and the power of sin is no longer over you. You're no longer enslaved to your sin. Now you are enslaved to me. Follow me. Love me. Be grateful for what I've done. Listen to Spurgeon. Quote, Oh, how few minutes have I in which to speak of such a lesson, the matchless love of Jesus, that for your sakes and mine, He would not merely suffer in body, but consented even to bear the horror of being accounted a sinner and coming under the wrath of his father because of our sins. Though it cost him suffering unto death and sore amazement, yet sooner than that we shall surely perish. The Lord is now our sure hope. Can we not cheerfully endure persecution for his sake in the light of this? Can we not labor earnestly for him in the light of this? Are we so ungenerous that his cause shall know a lack while we have the means of helping it? Are we so base that his work shall lag behind while we have strength to carry it on in the light of this? 
I charge you by Gethsemane, he says. My brethren, if you have a part and lot in the passion of your Savior, love him much who loved you so immeasurably and spent and be spent for him, end quote. That's good stuff, isn't it? It's that Heidelberg Catechism all over again. Those categories of that great catechism of guilt, of grace, and then gratitude. That at one point before Christ, you were guilty. And that then there was grace shown to you, unmerited, undeserved favor at the foot of the cross. And by faith, you have come now to be the recipient of God's blessings. Grace, you're no longer guilty. You're now under grace. And now you live life out of gratitude as a believer, right? It's the response, the grateful, loving response of one who has been redeemed and rescued from not only the penalty of our sin, but the power, sin's grip, so that now you can actually lovingly obey and obey out of gratitude and out of worship and adoration. Amen? You see, we know love because He first loved us. Amen? This is such a portrait of that here in His passion. Love for humanity was the reason for Christ's passion. And even more than that, obviously love and a commitment to to the glory of His Father. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, keeps saying, I came to do my Father's will. I came to do my Father's will. But we glory in the fact that the expression of Him doing the Father's will was Him going to the cross to die for sinners. What great love. What great love. So what a glorious first portrait of our precious Lord, His unique passion. But here's a second glorious portrait, okay? Second glorious portrait, Christ's humble dependence. Christ's humble dependence. This is all over the place. That's why I didn't put the verses in here. But verse 32 and verses 35 through 36 and verse 39 and verse 41 This dependence of of Jesus, humble Jesus, permeates our passage. Don't miss this. All throughout this passage, we see Jesus humbly dependent upon his Father in prayer. Look at verse 32. He said to his disciples, sit here until I have what? Prayed. Verse 35, and he went a little beyond them. He leaves the inner circle of Peter and James and John in another location. And what does Jesus go do by himself? Look at verse 35. He began to what? To pray. Verse 36, he's praying to God. Abba, Father, was full of emotion. Abba was Aramaic, by the way, perhaps equivalent to our, our contemporary title of Daddy, of Papa. It's a title of intimacy, of trust, of tender affection. Much too intimate and even inappropriate for many, many Jews who who saw God as so great, so beyond us, so transcendent that we cannot address Him like this. Abba? Oh no. Why does Jesus do this? I'll tell you. Because this is how close they've always been. From all eternity, before the foundation of the world, the Son of God and God the Father have shared perfect communion, perfect fellowship, perfect relationship, unhindered by anything. Wow. Abba Father, verse 36. Notice, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We'll look at that next week. But suffice it to say, what's the point? Jesus was praying for God's will to be done, not his. He's fervently petitioning God. Fervently pleading with God. Look at verse 39. Again, 
He went away and prayed, saying the same words. That little word again in verse 39 signals that this is now a second prayer session that Jesus goes into. He's prayed once. Who knows how long that was? He comes back again in verse 39 after a second prayer session. And look at verse 41. And he came the third time and said to them. This means that there were at least three prolonged prayer sessions by Jesus in Gethsemane. Mark it. Our Savior was repeatedly, persistently, intimately, fervently petitioning and praying before His heavenly Father, and He was doing it according to the will of God. Yet not I will, He says to His Father, but what you will. And keep in mind, this is all in the middle of the night for crying out loud. How many of us are are able to stay awake in the middle of the night to do this kind of a thing? We see that the disciples certainly weren't. And so full of emotion, Jesus is doing this as he anticipates betrayal and arrest in the middle of the night. I mean, what do we do when in physical, emotional, or, or spiritual distress late at night? You ever been up in the middle of the night? Something's weighing on you, and you're up, and somehow you just get up, and it's the Lord calling us perhaps to get into his word and prayer. But what are we doing? What do we do? How am I going to solve this? This financial situation? How am I going to solve this situation in a relationship? What am I going to do to fix this? We start looking within for the answers. Maybe we go turn on the TV because that's a good escape, right? Nothing wrong with watching a little TV, but sometimes we run to that as an escape to not come to the foot of the cross. We're so much not like Jesus in this. We go to our cell phones. We go to social media. What was our Lord doing? Praying petitioning at wee hours of the night, midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning, perhaps three in the morning, perhaps four in the morning. Who knows how long this was? Praying in the middle of the night. Again, he wasn't just putting on a show, beloved. He wasn't just putting on a facade. Jesus didn't sit around saying to himself in Gethsemane, you know, my disciples are watching I better watch out for my behavior. I better make sure that I pray a little bit so they can say, oh, wow, what an example Jesus is. We will pray, too. Jesus wasn't sitting around saying, you know, my future followers, including Calvary Bible Church, will be reading about me in the future, so let me act this thing out so that they could be people of prayer. Is that what he was doing? No. This wasn't a show. Brothers and sisters, prayer was a way of life for Jesus. He was a god Conscious men. Always living in the presence of God. Isn't that what prayer is? It's us living in the presence of God, constantly talking to the Lord, constantly on the cell phone, if you will, communicating with our Heavenly Father. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is shown to be persistent in prayer. Listen, prayer was Jesus' habitual routine. Write this reference down, Luke 4, 42 says this, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. There he was up early in the morning to commune with his father. Jesus was, it was his habitual routine to be uh, in prayer. He was a humbly dependent man. Jesus prayed during busy times. Luke chapter 5 and verse 15 says this, but the news about Jesus was spreading even farther in large crowds, literally in the hundreds and thousands. People are following after Jesus. He's at the peak of his ministry. And obviously these people are fickle. They're not following after Jesus because they believe him to be the God man. 
the Messiah, but they're following nevertheless. Ministry is busy. Large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. And then it says this, but Jesus himself emphatically, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. As life got busier, more hectic, more demands were placed upon him. What did Jesus do? He was a man of prayer. He prayed when faced with critical decisions, such as before the choosing of the, of the 12, including, by the way, Judas Iscariot. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 says, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples to himself, and chose 12 of them whom he named the apostles. That was a huge decision. What did Jesus do in preparation for that decision? He sought the face of his Father. He was humbly dependent. Jesus was a man of prayer. He prayed in the morning. He prayed in the middle of the day. He prayed throughout the day, during the day, at night, overnight, and in the middle of the night. He was always in a constant state of prayer. And how powerful was Jesus' example of prayer. Prayer was such a way of life for him that after a while, the disciples caught on to Jesus' example and they say, teach us how to pray, Lord. Teach us to pray. Luke 11, verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John the Baptist also taught his disciples. Lord, we've been watching you. You're a model to us. You're an example to us. Teach us to pray. And he said to them, this is in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, When you pray, say, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That became the pattern of prayer for us. And did you notice that even in the Lord's Prayer, When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, when you pray. He says that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, not if you pray, when you pray. And so notice, in his darkest hour, in his greatest moment of need, in his deepest anguish and agony, what was Jesus doing? Jesus is utterly dependent on his Father. We should be astounded by his humility and his example. Amen? This is the God-man, our Savior. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, in His humanity, brothers and sisters, lived fully dependent upon His Father, and He lived in the power of the Spirit. And again, this is important. His dependence, His humble dependence shown here, is derived from His real humanity. As a human, He needed His Father, because He was truly human, as He is truly God. He experienced the normal vulnerabilities of what it means to be human and yet never sinned. He ate and he drank as we do. He had energy. He got tired. He slept and he took naps. He experienced emotions, though he never sinned. He was really human, and so he needed to be dependent upon God and live in the power of the Spirit as you and I do. He tasted of humanness that he may come alongside of us. How humbling that is. Listen to John Owen 
quote, Behold, dear brethren, the real humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think of him as God merely, though he is assuredly divine, but feel Christ also to be near of kin to you, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. How thoroughly can he sympathize with you? He has been burdened with all your burdens and grieved with all your griefs. Are the waters very deep through which you are passing? Yet they are not deep compared with the torrents with which he was buffeted. Never a pang penetrates your spirit to which your covenant head, Christ, was a stranger. Jesus can sympathize with you in all your sorrows, for he has suffered far more than you have ever suffered and is able, therefore, to save you in your temptations. Lay hold on Jesus as your familiar friend, your brother born for adversity, and you will have obtained a consolation which will bear you through the uttermost deeps. End quote. Wow. This is our Savior. Good stuff to ponder, isn't it? Amazing. You see, whenever we ponder the person of Jesus, his deity and his humanity, two natures in one person, not only are we driven to to appreciation and amazement, but awe and worship and adoration in our songs should want to sing unto the Lord his truth concerning who he is and what he's done. Amen? I hope that that's how you feel. I was so moved by this passage that way. And whenever we read and reflect upon Jesus' prayer life, Man, his humble dependence upon his heavenly father during his humanity, we should be convicted. We should be convicted about the fact that so oftentimes, beloved, even subtly, imperceptibly, we have a tendency to function self-sufficiently. As if we could do this Christian thing on our own. We can all struggle with this. But what did Jesus said? Abide in me. You cannot do anything apart from me. Abide in me. Remain under me. Remain connected to me. In fellowship with me. Functionally speaking. Practically speaking. We need to be dependent upon Him. And of course, none of us can boast of having reached perfection in the area of prayer life, right? Anybody here want to raise your hand and say, you know what? My prayer life is Jesus-esque. You know? It's like Jesus. It's comparable to the Lord Jesus' amazing prayer life. You should all sit at my feet so that I could teach you how to pray. Anybody? (laughs) Elders, make sure that you're watching out and pastors for anybody who raises their hand. None of us have achieved perfection in this area. We have much work to do, don't we? Look to the one who was humbly dependent, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might emulate his example. So notice, Christ's unique passion, Christ's humble dependence, two glorious portraits of our Lord that should evoke in us awe and wonder and amazement, all leading to worship. And all God's people said, Amen. We'll look at the the next two glorious truths next week, okay? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I feel like we have treaded on holy ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your Son that you sent into the world so that you might glorify yourself through the redemption of sinners such as us. Lord, thank you for that. We are recipients of your grace, your unmerited, undeserved favor and kindness shown in Christ in His perfect life, His atoning death, His glorious resurrection, conquering sin and death, His wonderful ascension, His sitting at your right hand, interceding for us, His soon return. Lord, we are recipients of great, lavish blessings. Father, help us to respond to what you've done in Christ, apart from anything that we have or could ever do, that we would respond on mission all the more for the sake of your glory and the exaltation of your Son and the power of your Spirit. 
by the guidance of your holy word. Make Calvary Bible Church all the more a bulwark, a lighthouse in this community, in Los Angeles, in this state, in this country. And that, Lord, many would go from here as they already have and have an impact in the world for Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.